Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios, ready to bring you, as always, some top-notch tennis talk from around the globe. It's a big show this week, literally and figuratively, with Riley Opelka joining the show. He's been in the top 20, won several titles, and has a lot to say on and off the court. He's very authentic and very honest, and uh, we put some context to a lot of his takes and Talk about his hobbies off the court as well as his art collection, his interest in the fashion world, his friendships with other ATP players, his generation, Tommy Paul, Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo. He breaks down their games and discusses a lot on and off the court. It's a great conversation with Riley Opelka. And then Leif Shivers joins the show to talk about Madrid, the Madrid Open, the ATP and WTA Masters event, the expanded draw. We chatted on Tuesday before some things happened, a lot of interest and intrigue on the road to Roland Garros. It's Raleigh Opelka and it's Leif Shires on Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's start the show. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Uh, special guest this week, doing the Madrid Open. Uh, my guest on the show is a 25-year-old American with a couple titles, four to be exact, to his name on the ATP, trying to grow that collection, which I'm sure he will. Uh, and is uh, very authentic on and off the court now working in the broadcast realm. Riley Opelka, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's been fun hanging in the Tennis Channel booth. Yeah, it really has. And I think, uh, you know, we spoke a couple of years ago, it feels like forever ago now, with uh, the COVID Open and everything before Atlanta. And a lot's happened since then. You know, your career has kind of just taken off and it was starting to take off, unfortunately, before the injury. What's it been like starting with the TV side of things? How have you adjusted to life on the broadcasting world? I've only done it for four days, so it's not <laughs> hasn't been yeah. like a life adjustment at all. I've done, I did three days at Labor Cup and now two yeah. days here at Madrid. So it really hasn't, it's not a, mm -hmm. you know, I've been injured now for eight or nine months. It's only taken up five days of, mm. of, my, of my injury time. So it hasn't really been much of a, you know, life adjustment. Yeah. Um, let's say I've been super adamant about getting my training in. I just came from the gym. I'm going to yeah. leave here today and I'm going to go back to the gym. Yeah. The, uh, I, I've heard you say in interviews that you have a very analytical mind and how you process things, how you study the game and how you attack the game. And I've always felt like regardless of personality, that those are the type of people that kind of do well on TV because you see it at a different level, even for tennis players. Some players just go out and feel and it feels like your side is I study, I see how things are constructed. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah. You know, I think most players are now. We mm -hmm. all have access to, to data because you know, you use it to a certain extent. I use my instinct when I'm out there for sure, but also there's certain things I want to know. I choose what I want to know and I choose what I don't want to know <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, when I'm scouting an opponent. And that's why I feel comfortable when I'm calling matches because I know all of these, I know all these guys, mm -hmm. you know, I've, it's my job to know them yeah. because I'm playing against them. Would I go to the extent, you know, I don't have to do research before I'm commentating on these matches at all. Right. When I'm done playing, let's say, and I'm not on tour, commentating would be a lot tougher. 
Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, that's if you, if you want to talk other sports, I know you're a sporting fan in general. It's like the NFL analyst. Like when a guy like Tony Romo comes in, he's got that fresh knowledge. It doesn't last forever, though. Yeah, Your it peers doesn't. aren't always going to be there. Yeah, I think my, like, let's say commentating <laughs> prime is going to last only a year after my career in tennis. Oh, really? Only a year, you think? I can tell I'm really good. Uh, like, uh, yeah, I would say. Because okay. by that point, there's going to be a whole new crop of guys. I'm not going to know all yeah. of them. I'm not going to be as good. I thought the Medvedev breakdown you had was good about explaining why his backhand when you and Andy Roddick were on TC Live talking about the two-handers. That's something that you could watch as much footage, but unless you're out there, exactly. you don't know. Exactly. And hey, I've been on the other side of it. I practice with him a lot. You don't, <laughs> even when you watch it on TV, you don't see how it comes at you. Well, you got a couple wins over him, so there's that. At the, just at one. The <laughs> yeah, just yeah, one. Okay. Well, I mean, and, and it was really interesting, too, to watch kind of your progression because you talk about the analytical side being tactically there. The run you made in, in Canada a couple years ago to get to the final where it was Medvedev, unfortunately, that got you, but it was like Sitsipas, RBA, Kyrgios, Dimitrov. It's pretty different. Like, across the board, you can't find a collection of guys that play differently. Totally, yeah. That's um the... The modern game of tennis, it's tennis is constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. um, Alcaraz brought back, you know, tennis got super linear, mm -hmm. meaning like when Rafa first came on, the the net clearance balls were clearing the net by a lot. Yeah, and same with Roger. To be honest, he's got a lot of RPMs on his forehand, so you saw a lot of net clearance. But mm -hmm. uh, the Medvedev, Zverev, like the new kind of um, crop of guys, myself included, we play a lot more linear, and and Rublev. You know, look at all these guys. But Alcaraz has really kind of brought back the, you know, his forehand is clearing the net by a lot. His backhand clears the net by a lot. He's brought back kind of that element of mixing up heights and spins and speeds and just doing it all. So when you see that, like someone in your player perspective, like putting the player head on, is that exciting? Like, wow, this is different? Or is that like scary in a way or both? No, it's not yeah. scary. It's just it is what it is. Yeah. Part of it's... um, You know, the game changes. Technology changes. Right. Balls change. Courts change. But... That's kind of what it is. Casper Ruud is the same. He plays yeah. super. Uh, he doesn't play so linear like everyone was. The game had gotten right. so linear for a time there. And now, um, yeah, there's so many. It's interesting just kind of how all these tendencies come out. Most guys now have such a bunty, flat backhand, for mm -hmm. example. That wasn't, you know, the case not too long ago. Guys were using a lot of spin and topspin on it. Now everyone's got this kind of Kyrgios-esque Bunty, flat, medvedev backhand. I think, uh, I mean, you're fitting right into the analysis role, but I do agree with a lot of that in the sense that you are right there. Like your finger's on the pulse. You're on yeah. tour. It's your job to study them and put the time in. Uh, and, and I was doing some research studying up on everything since the last time we talked, and I saw an article where they described you as radically honest. And I, I don't know if it was meant in, in jest and in fun, but like, do you think that's a fair assessment? Or just an honest guy to a fault sometimes? Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I guess so. I, if I look at it in a lot of ways, like a lot of the world and especially mm -hmm. people that work in media, especially tennis media, they're yeah. incredibly radical. Yeah, they're so polar polarizing, very extreme. You know, you really they really want in tennis. People aren't so open to other opinions. I'm not looking to be controversial. That's mm -hmm. just my genuine view on on a lot of things, and I find it so crazy that. A lot of my takes are super, like, and in, in what's viewed as, like, uh, like you kind of said. Um, I think that was a compliment, actually, yeah, from what how I think it was yeah. a nice way, a mild way to put it. Because some of the things that I see of other that other people say about me is 
much more well, I, I think, harsh than that. It's yeah, very radical. I think having ideas is, I mean, it always was a good thing, and maybe it is. Tennis is not used to new ideas and change. And I found it interesting that your crop of guys coming up have ideas. I mean, like Tiafo said, I would like to, you know, see noise. Pagula with the trash talk debate earlier. And then Tommy Paul even a couple of years ago told me that he doesn't like how everyone has to be quiet at all times. It makes the sport look soft. Totally. And it's not like you have to agree with that, but I do think having a second opinion or a contrarian opinion should be fine. Of course. Yeah, I, I totally yeah. agree. And, and I think just nowadays, if you kind of, in the tennis media, if you aren't on the same agendas, what it really is, you, they don't accept you. Mm. Um, it's a very old school mentality. They, they've tried to evolve and become more, uh, modern, I think, but mm-hmm. it, I think it's actually been the opposite. I think it's it's very uh, polarizing, very radical, and there's certain things. There's total. There's so much. I guess there's so many biased people in media, in tennis, and journalism that is unfair. I mean, yeah. it's unfair. Even you know, I, people call things out that they don't even realize. Like Holger Rune, for example. Right. Uh, a lot of the players like the like. It's funny how people <laughs> will rip him uh, in in media. He's 19 years old and he's top eight in the world. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a big believer that a lot of people's weaknesses are so like closely intertwined with their strengths. Yeah. Um, Holger is a, a very nice guy off the court. Most players would agree with that. He's super nice in the locker room, very friendly on court. You kind of do what you got to do. I'm, if I were Holger, I would not, I'd make sure, <laughs> for example, I wouldn't listen to a single Thing the media says. I'm mm-hmm. 19 years old. I'm one of the best tennis players yeah. on the planet. Yeah, and you can look at history of athletes, and maybe this is where tennis skewers away, where what got them to the dance is who they are. So if you change that, it could lose that. And I, and then, like, I was just going to – you brought up Holger. It's a great point. The stuff with Stan, like, it was a perfect encapsulation to me of – they had it. They had a moment on the court. Yeah. They're practicing together a couple weeks later. Like yeah. it's just heated athleticism. That's how it is. Yeah. yeah. And and the one thing I even appre- appreciate a lot about Stan is like, it just kind of shows you the guy Stan is. He's a straight mm-hmm. up guy. He's not gonna. Yeah. I I always have a problem with people when they when they act one way <laughs> to you and then yeah. they do something else behind your back. Right. right. That's that's kind of how the world is. Mm-hmm. I totally respect Stan saying you know discussing with him at the net and and then i even respect him more that they're practicing that's just people don't realize there's there's a life behind the scenes on outside the lines that you see contrary (laughs) to you know like bouchard for example the other day okay yeah you know she shook um (laughs) the yastrzemska match yeah yeah. she she shook diana yastrzemska's hand and and it was like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. and then afterwards yeah. you go and tweet that. It's like, come on. Well, like, that's, that's a social media complex too, where it's like, yeah, if you have an issue, if you have something, just get, you know, it's, totally. it's more upfront and you're and you're in the actual sacred place, which is the locker room. So there is stuff in there that doesn't and shouldn't get out. So that's where a lot of that stuff's handled that we on the outside just don't even see about. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Holger's always, for example, Holger, I, I like to use him because, and I also, and Novak is like the easy example. If yeah. Novak had changed... People like criticizing <laughs> Novak, you know, if you change Novak's mindset and his, like he's applied those concepts that he has on life, yeah. like him having the courage to just take a stance, mm-hmm. not play both sides of the coin like a lot of his peers do, mm-hmm. and, and to just face things like head on yeah. is the reason why he is undisputed the greatest tennis player that's ever lived. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue even by the metrics, like what he's done. And yeah, I mean... I think you were the one that was on record as saying like what he's done for the lower levels. Like no one's 
really giving back like him. No. He doesn't have to stick his neck out and say, we want to raise, you know, the lower you know, fees, the 250s, the challengers, but he's doing it. He, totally. And because he's not, you know, he, he puts himself on the line and, and I respect that. Yeah. Part of it's because <laughs> he doesn't, you know, the media's never given him a fair shake. Cause like I said, he doesn't play into kind of what they want. So he's the enemy. To Tough the, act to follow too when you're following Roger and Rafa. Who, of course, you know, but he's the enemy yeah, of the tennis yeah. media. And that's why, yeah. that's why he doesn't play both sides of the coin. Right. And that's why he's so willing to, you know, I think we're most players are super grateful for him he's like a he's a pro's pro you know he <laughs> yeah. really is do you think and we can we can move on to other stuff but do you think you're in that sweet spot of you have credibility you've been ranked in the top 20 you've, you know you well respected by your peers but it's the guys like Novak who are rare like if you're that good there's a lot to give up like it's understandable why the best of the best aren't speaking out and speaking up on everything yeah somewhat I don't blame I don't blame them for that. I, I fault the media for it okay. entirely. I, I complete. I don't fault the players for it at all. They kind of pick and choose who they want to, right. you know. Um, so I don't. I don't really fault the players so much for it. Okay. Well, I mean, we'll we'll try to you know do our best to to change certain things. O'Reilly Opelka here on Tennis Channel Insight, and I do want to ask you about you know your peers. And, and we know about the quarantine, you and Tommy Paul in 2020. A lot's happened since then for your former roommate. And totally. he dropped your name as saying that you were helping him scout. You basically were handing him all the scouting during Australia. What was that experience like, helping him out and then watching your friend succeed? Uh, you know, there's only so he's the one that, like out yeah. there on the court in the heat of the moment <laughs> battling. But, yeah, I he's helped me out a ton in my life, you know, more than maybe I've even shared. And I'd like to say he'll mm. say the same about me. I you know, I, he was a guy that always broke the rules since we were a kid. He, <laughs> since we were 12, 13 years old. And, and he was the guy that I, I really, we lived in the, in the dorms at the USTA. Right. And the only f like group of guys that made it were our generation of that, of that kind of, um, you know, Patrick McEnroe, I thought was brilliant and brought in, he said, I want the four to five best guys from each year. I, we're, I'm going to, be very selective mm -hmm. we'll give them all the resources that we can and let's hopefully you know we get some top 10 guys out of it the only four guys that were a part of that program on a regular basis I mean with me Tommy Fritz and Francis that kind of made it a lot of the other guys had super successful college careers a lot of them went to the University of Virginia we always called it <laughs> USTA VA um, and they're you know crushing it in life and yeah. business which is awesome but I think Tommy there's a reason why I think our group did yeah. better than the rest and we definitely broke all the most rules you ask everyone that worked in in the tennis facility at the time from from the room from the ra yeah. to the you know to security <laughs> we were the troubled generation yeah. and some of that was we i think we had way more fun than any other mm. group of guys that were in there because we were we caused problems and and yeah. we I don't know. I think there's something to that. And I credit Tommy for a lot of that. He was Ferris Bueller. <laughs> he was Ferris Bueller. You were Cameron. Yeah, I was yeah. guilty by association okay. and I always followed him. <laughs> but then later on in life, you know, he came and we, he lived with me in the pandemic. We trained together yeah. every day. And I remember the first time he had kind of cracked into the top hundred. I was telling him his first big match. One of his first big matches, I thought he was playing Fognini somewhere, maybe in Canada. And, and I had told him, like, you know, I, you really need to start spending some more time scouting and watching these guys. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, how? And I'm like, tennis TV, go yeah. on, log in or, or whatever. Go, go look at 
some of the, his his last matches and and I remember he lost and afterwards he called me and he's like it's a terrible idea. He's like I went on YouTube <laughs> I saw this hype video of Fognini. It was like his highlights. He's like, I watched his highlights. It was like some epic music playing with like bass drops and like passing shot winners. And I was intimidated. And I was like, why would you watch his highlight reel? Like, and um, we always kind of joke about that. But Tommy's really progressed. He's a he's a different person now. I mean, your class, the four names you said. I mean, you guys have just taken like there. It's not even close. Other eras, and there's been some great talented eras and birth years, but. You made kind of waves when you were the first one to really say, like, we got the depth, we don't have the world beaters. Like, it's yep. it's getting closer now. Like, you got totally. top 10, top 15 guys all, so yeah. it might be time to revise that. Somewhat. I don't think we have a guy that can beat Alcaraz. Mm. Like, Taylor Fritz is the best American hands down right now. Yeah, I agree. Um, he's just so consistent. He takes care of everyone he's supposed to. But now, you know, with Alcaraz coming up in, in Holger Runa, the matchup there, look what look what happened in Miami. Uh, you know, as great of a ball striker as Fritz is, Alcaraz is so mm. fast. He's his te- tennis wise, he is out there with Novak. Yeah, I mean, you guys, you guys mentioned it too, like to get to the level that the four of you and the other Americans following, because then the younger, you know, group drafts in. You have to put the work into for all the fun. Like it took Tommy Paul a long time to work. It took Taylor Fritz a lot to make that break in. He was top fifty like right away, yeah. dipped, and then really put time in to get this consistent yeah fritz is like one of the best ball strikers in the world you know you can he it it doesn't he defies science (laughs) and tennis in so many ways he uses a super light racket he strings it crazy tight like 60 pounds which i think the tour average is below 48 so Mm -hmm. that's like Mm -hmm. extremely tight extremely light racket he's got a short backswing a short follow-through like a bent elbow at contact and somehow the ball goes 100 miles per hour every time. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that too. Like he hits it so hard. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, I know he puts time in and works hard, but you wouldn't think a guy built like him would hit it as hard as he does. Yeah. He grew up with a court in his backyard. His yeah. dad was a coach. His mom right. was a former player. He's kind of like, he's born for mm-hmm. it, you know? And um, and then France, I, the thing that I love about like this generation of American tennis is how like you have so many great players in the top 100 and all of them play a different style. 100%. And, you, and I, that's one thing I always admired about the Spaniards. You had Feliciano Lopez, mm-hmm. who was chipping and serving and volleying. You had Rafa, who was, you know, whatever you want to classify Rafa's <laughs> style yeah. of play. People say he's, he, he's offensive, you know, all the time. And yeah. I don't care what people say. <laughs> but then you had Bautista Gut, uh. completely different, hitting the ball so flat. Uh, Ferrer, one of the biggest foreigners in the world, but also a grinder, a scrapper. Yeah. Like, so many different styles. And that's what I like about the current generation of American tennis. You know, you have, I'm a server. Tommy is an all-around, all-court player. Foe is an all-court player with, like, tons of great trick shots and drop shots. Fritz is just a pure, like, you know, gunman out there. Mm-hmm. It's just fire, fire, fire. There's so many different styles. It's really exciting to see in your generation just getting going to reaching those peak years coming up. So it's going to be fun, and it is great that it's not – like built in a factory, like everyone can play different. I want to get to some of the personal stuff because you're, you know, the as self-described tallest collector of art in the world and youngest maybe. Was that, because I remember I was watching that press conference. I think you were in like Russia mm-hmm. and it was like, I'm going to Belgium. I can't wait to go. Some of my favorite artists are out there. Yeah. How did that love of art come to be? Was it just, you know, bored on the road looking for interest to get by and get through the grind of tour life? Yeah, totally. It was just the boredom of, you know, the, 
everyone thinks there's this reality of like this glorious life in tennis. They see an occasional influencers post at a you know on a PJ and mm-hmm. heading to Monte Carlo at the Country Club. That's like that's just that that that's one week of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, go show where the guys are right now in Madrid. Mm-hmm. They're staying at a disgusting hotel. It smells like sewage. That's why all of them checked out. <laughs> and the fact is that that's more common and more likely to happen than yeah. the Monte Carlo week. And um, so there is a sense of, I, I didn't want to be in those tournament hotels yeah. and, you know, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner on site. And that was never me. And yeah. it was actually, it was at first and I hated it. I didn't like yeah. my job. Um, so yeah, I found so much enjoyment and so much time in museums looking at art and, um, learning about art and then also I mean I'm not McEnroe's a legend of uh, he's an art le- he's got a crazy crazy yeah. collection people don't realize and say so does Venus Williams Venus Williams is like a major collector mm-hmm. she's got I'm, I'm by no means the first but uh, I, I love it you know it's it's been kind of interesting to watch different dynamics and different hobbies kind of come up where it's not just the same as we mentioned playing the style in the factory um didn't you mention trying to get some of your friends out there has that worked or has there been some bad experiences in art you mean? <laughs> yeah i mean tommy has a great drawing from renus vandeveld yeah um <laughs> tommy's somewhat open to it francis is he has his own you know he would much rather be at a nba game he'd, mm-hmm. be, he'd rather be at a you know a d2 college game <laughs> than at a you know a gallery or even just watching on his phone fritz would rather be streaming twitch um <laughs> yeah and and that's cool like i, I like that's right it's cool that we're all different how uh how's the group text been after tiafa's performance in the celebrity game uh <laughs> i mean was it good <laughs> there wasn't i mean there's no was, it's yeah. just horrible basketball <laughs> it really was, is. Yeah. like me and tommy are good yeah like, actually good we, and and like <laughs> i it's funny because like <laughs> foe takes it so well he's such a great yeah, yeah. jokester Luckily, I don't want to rip on him because he's just, he's the funniest guy you'll ever meet. Mm. He's the nicest guy you'll ever meet, but he is god-awful yeah. at basketball. Yeah, he's was, the worst the basketball best. player probably in the top 100 on ATP. <laughs> that's, wow. I'd have to get the list out. That's that's bold. I would, yeah, I don't, you know, get one-on-one, man. Do you feel like tennis has opened up some doors for you to not only, I mean, I know that there's the grind of tour life, but you mentioned the art collection, going to Paris Fashion Week, meeting a guy like Machine Gun Kelly. I saw that post. As I well. knew him before then. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I met Kelly yeah. in like 2018. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Fashion Week was cool in Paris. I went in Milan for mm-hmm. the Prada show. Yeah. Um, again, even then, like that just shows you how lame like tennis media is. <laughs> you realize how stupid some of these people look saying like, like they're like, making fun of me all the time for how I look and how I'm dressed. But it's like, it's, I'm literally wearing Prada, you know, <laughs> yeah. like if you're going to rip Prada, well, some of like, the sponsorships are going high end. Like I saw Felix with the, the new sponsor. Is that Dior he's on now? Is it, he's so smooth. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's just like a cool, he could wear anything. And it looks cool. The high end you know? stuff is kind of nice though, that it's kind of coming into the tennis realm, like the you yeah. know, sponsorships there. Emma's got a few I'm, as well. So. Yeah. Same with Emma. I mean, but look at Felix and Emma, they'd be like, poster child for any major fashion house what do they not look super cool in, you know <laughs> i know it's I, I the biggest thing when i take away like your interest and your outside thing is it's okay to just go in a different direction like yeah whether or not it's for somebody it doesn't have to be like it's just your own you know your own lane yeah totally and, and the thing is with fashion too i love that i i like the freedom of not having like you know uh just being able to go to a ton of different shows you're a great artist some a lot of the great yeah creative directors are artists like one of my favorite 
creative directors ever is a, a guy named Chris Van Asha. Yeah. And he was creative director of Dior for 12, 11 or 12 years and then creative director of uh, Berluti. And I'm, I consider myself somewhat of a middle America kid. I'm from, I was born in Michigan. Mm-hmm. The town I grew up in, in North Florida is like kind of out in the boonies. Like yeah. Palm coast is not known for its culture of any, by any means. Um, it's way out. It's, it's like Italians, like oh, we're going to Olive Garden tonight. One of those. Yeah, it's, things. it's yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. I mean, that's like that yeah. was one of the first restaurants in yeah. Palm Coast, like yeah. one of the first chain restaurants. It was literally like Olive Garden. Yeah, and um, like what kids did there on weekends was like go to Walmart. Okay. <laughs> like that was <laughs> yeah. Um, and for Chris Van Asha, when because fashion was before art for me, I was watching. I was streaming his last runway show at Dior. This was probably in eighteen. Um, and you know, I always think it, it must take a really good artist, a special person to get a middle America kid on his phone, (laughs) making an effort, waking, setting an alarm at a different time to go stream his runway show. And I followed him to Berluti. Um, he's like, he's just an example of one of my favorites. I I love Raph Simmons, who's currently the creative director of, of Prada. And then what was crazy about it all was how I didn't, it makes sense, but it all tied back into Belgium, Mm -hmm. Antwerp. The most amount of art collectors per square kilometer is wow. in Belgium. Chris Van Asha is from um, Belgium, Antwerp to be yeah. exact. Raf Simmons is from there. Dries Van Noten is from there. Margiela is from there. You have all these legendary like fashion creative directors from Belgium, from Antwerp to be exact, which is this small town. And then I realized, wow, it makes so much sense that because the, they pull all their inspo from art. Oh, wow. And, and that's where all the art is. It's inter- it, there's something ironic in the fact that you had what your worst experience at Antwerp on a t- in a tennis tournament, but you found <laughs> it's yeah. still number one worst. Hands down, the worst tournament on tour. Oh. Shouldn't should it could it could barely pass as a challenger. Well, at least there was something positive in there. I'll always go back. <laughs> always go back. I'm yeah. always going to be there just because yeah. of Tim Van Laar. It's my it's favorite. Perfect. He's never doesn't. Every time he's usually got a great show. Every time he's, I I, I collect pretty much all of his artists. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm somewhat biased. Yeah. But I found Tim before he found me, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so, you're like, you discovered a band that kind of blew up. Yeah, of. this is yeah. not one bit transactional. Yeah. This yeah, is, yeah. It's really, it, wow. it was super authentic. I discovered Tim. Um, <laughs> awesome. He loves tennis. He knew of me, but yeah. I just, I found Renus Vandeveld. That was my yeah. first email to Tim. Yeah. I inquired about it. He did a colored pencil drawing of a tennis court that I loved. Wow. And it, he responded to me saying, it's sold. <laughs> I don't have the, like, it's gone. But yeah. he proposed me another one. And yeah. then... How it came full circle, fast forward, we had our partnership, our deal. I carried the pink bag on court. I got fined for it. <laughs> yeah. And he reimbursed me in the fine, and he gave me that drawing. Wow. And I, I was like, I thought you said so. And he's like, yeah, I bought it. Wow. That's <laughs> so like old school Jordan, like the first Jordans that came out banned. No, it's it's good. It's good that you found your passion and uh, have a reason to go back to Belgium every time now. Yeah, I always play the <laughs> tournament despite, despite it being <laughs> the worst tournament on tour. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Couple more things with Riley Opelka as we wrap this up. Um, it's been a blast talking. I do need to know if we have an updated Servbot rankings because a couple of your top five are retired now. You know, no Karlovich, no Kevin Anderson anymore. Yeah, that's true. 
Isner's always one. Got to be. Um, Round Rancher Hurts coming back. Okay. On the grass court um, season, potentially. He's uh, he's always in the... He's a total bot. Yeah. Ben Shelton's in the mix. Oof. He's second team. Okay. I give him second tier level. Like, uh, does the serve have... Is it the style or the serve itself? That's my question for you being the expert. Like, It's more so the return. Oh, okay. Because I was thinking like Cressy because he comes to the net oh, a lot. He's a total bot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he's more of a bot than John. Okay. Like, yeah. John has more <laughs> to his game than Cressy. Okay. Like... Yeah, John's just the OG, you know, yeah, and you he's can. the best. He's like, the, we call him the go-go. I, I can't imagine anything more funny for your perspective to play him in a clay court final. Like, that was... Not really. You know, okay. I mean, when I got off the court in Rome... Just the, the reaction to everybody else, like, we're well, in a clay court final. It just shows how stupid yeah. people are in tennis. Like, that yeah. literally tells you how dumb... Yeah. These people that get paid <laughs> to work in tennis are... Yeah. It's insane how dumb they are. If they were so shocked <laughs> by that... When I got off the court in... in yeah. Rome, I beat someone in the quarters. Um, I'm blanking. Maybe it was Karatsev or, yeah. And and I made semis. I'm playing Rafa, and right away they're like, "Wow, do you know when the la- who?" There was, I knew it was kind of a trick question. Who's the last American to make semis of Rome? I'm like, easy, Isner for mm-hmm. sure. Isner's made semis of almost every tournament. Yeah, like, and he talks about how much he loves serving at this one, Madrid. Like it's one of his favorite places when he plays to serve. And yeah, like, you know. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's done semis of Madrid before. It is just lazy to just assume that all oh, big guy server it, can't. It, it's can't ridiculous. John's won Houston but, yeah. however many times. I've had yeah. a lot of yeah. big wins on on mm-hmm. clay. I mean, yeah. despite what people think, it just, again that shows how stupid people well, that this is their job. Like they work, they <laughs> yeah, work yeah. in tennis, yeah, and they don't know that. Like they're that's shocking to them. Well, I think going forward and kind of you're you know going to come back to play and it's going to be exciting to see out there. I think the biggest thing too is you're still somebody that people don't like they fear that they don't want to play. And that's a good position to be in. Like, you know, it's going to take time to get back to the level that you want, but you're still a matchup problem, so to speak for a lot of these players. Yeah, no, I am. Um, yeah, it, it's not a great, it's not a great position to be in, you know, yeah. um, to be a dangerous player. Cause when you're dangerous, it means you're a floater in the draw, mm-hmm. which means you're not top 32 in the world. So I'm, I go by the rankings so much yeah. you know when people are discussing this guy oh he's you know he's i don't know i, I give so many examples of players who're like oh he's dangerous yeah. he could he's a, as a wild card this guy's dangerous he's 140 in the world for a reason you know that i'm a huge the rankings you told me the last time that well no one deserves a wild card like no one deserves yeah. a wild card yeah. ever yeah. the rankings don't lie right and i'm a i'm a huge huge believer in that you know someone could be like oh this guy yeah but he's been injured or he was a former great player He's he's a hundred and whatever one hundred ten in the world. He needs a wild card for a mm-hmm. reason. He is the hundred yeah. tenth best player in the world. Yeah, I I agree with you there. I do think it's good for everybody that the better players get higher ranked. Like nobody wants to see certain players, but yeah, it's the rankings are you are what your record says you are. The old Bill Parcells quote. Uh, well, it's great to have you here at Tennis Channel. Uh, it sounds like you know you're still very connected in the game, and and look, it's good to pull the curtain back on your perspective on things because a lot of times people will just read a statement out of context or it's have an assumption. Yeah. Everything is out of context. That's why everything. I, I don't. I actually find my a lot of my stances is not so radical. No, it's not. <laughs> and you see these things. You see these like how yeah. how people qu- quote me and and put it out there. It's like it's crazy. Yeah. Well, this was fun. Uh, Riley Opelka, huge thanks for coming on. I hope this was a good experience. We went with the A show. We were just going to do doubles talk was the B show, but I just threw that out. Doubles talk was the B show. <laughs> yeah, so none of that. But Riley, best of luck with everything. Glad to have you here, TC. Thanks for coming on Tennis Thank Channel you. Inside In.
Our tremendous thanks to Riley Opelka for taking time out of his schedule to talk on this podcast. I really enjoyed chatting with him. He says a lot of things. He's brutally honest, and I think that's a great quality, especially in this day and age. So uh, always a pleasure to talk to anybody on this show who has that level of experience and authenticity. So thanks to Riley Opelka, and best of luck to him as he gets ready to come back onto the court. All right, now it's time to talk about the Madrid Open with none other than Leif Shires, the broadcasting extraordinaire, former pro player himself. Leif's the humble bragger, but he made the top 40, so he's a legit, legit tennis player in his heyday. We recorded this on Tuesday before a lot of stuff happened, most notably Fritz going down to Zhang in an extraordinary match itself. A lot to say about the Madrid Open and the road to Roland Garros with none other than Leif Shires right now on Tennis Channel Insider. All right, now with us on Tennis Channel Inside and back again, a few months out, but you know, Madrid Open's expanded this year, so we got all the heavy hitters at the studio. It's Leif Shires back again, Leif. Uh, welcome back to Inside In. And might I add, you know, as we get into this Madrid draw, and I know you weren't the biggest clay court guy, you really raised your game on this surface. <laughs> I want to say that April is my favorite time of year, but not because of the clay court season. Yeah. Well, I, I've got, we got the hockey yeah, playoffs, yeah. you've got the NBA playoffs, and you've got the red clay. So it's a nice mix of, uh, you know, sports to follow. So we're looking at Madrid now, and it's funny because it's the second week. It's literally week two of a tournament that's always been one week in the past. And I don't know if there's a correlation there. We talked about the decision, which I understand to expand it and, you know, what that means, both good and bad. But we see it the second week, round of 16 on the men, a lot of unseeded players. I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, I think top to bottom, it's good for the players. A few more jobs out there from a 96, mm. or from a 56 to a 96. Obviously, that's good. Um, the schedule is always going to be tricky for players yeah. who have to travel to Europe and, mm -hmm. and they don't have a European base. I look at someone like Alex D. Manure. I mean, he's an Aussie, one of the trickiest traveling situations yeah. for any tennis player. And he's got a place in Alicante, Spain. Uh -huh. I mean, that's a nice thing to have for some of these situations that arise when you're trying to play consecutive clay courts events leading up to Roland Garros. For the Americans, it's a tough decision. Right. You know, how do you commit to, say, Monte Carlo early and Barcelona? Those are extra weeks on top of the three or four weeks ahead of Roland Garros. Demonar is an interesting example. I agree with that. Like, it's nice to have, but I'd expect him to be a little better on clay with that, you know, <laughs> access, all that stuff. Um, you're right. And then you see what happens, too. Like, you lose early. Look at that French challenger. It's Murray Mofis, round one. Tommy Paul's playing in it. Like, guys are looking to get matches. But I, I look at the positives of, you know, you look at the guys like uh, Altmaier, uh, that catch-in kid. They might not, They I would say, probably would not be here if the draw was smaller, qualifying, tougher matches early. This is huge for them, and the opportunity to you know make some money, obviously, but improve those rankings heading into RG. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. You're going to have more players, more opportunity, and uh, admittedly, without you know Novak and Rafa and Yannick and Mateo, you know, you've got yeah. a lot of guys who aren't a part of this draw. There are some openings here, and I think Madrid is sort of a unique clay court event because of the conditions, the altitude. It's a little faster. Players who take their chances and are a yeah. little aggressive at the right times, they can make some moves, and I think we're seeing that. Seven unseeded men into the round of 16, Ooh. which is a good number. Uh, let's talk about the top. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this today, and even in the beginning of this match and watching it, Alexander Zverev, he's showing strides. He's feeling more comfortable out there, moving a little better, and Alcaraz gave him three games. I just, I couldn't believe it. I really felt like this was a moment for Zverev to make a statement, you know, a statement moment. I'm back. 
maybe even just a tight match, get to a third, pressure the, this mm-hmm. youngster, but it didn't happen. I What can you say? How good is Alcaraz? It's, I don't know if I can answer the question. <laughs> like, I don't know. It changes every week. But but the thing with Alcaraz, too, is, and I, I want to get to the tactical stuff, the drop shot. Like, we, we can talk about it. We can break it down. As a former player, you've seen it. You've done drop shots. You've had people drop shot you. Walk me through why the disguise is just so incredible because I watch top-level players that don't see it coming, that know he does it, and they still don't see it coming. (laughs) Well, he's got the perfect blend because of the pace he produces off the ground. It's very natural, easy pace, and you seem to always be reacting to that pace. And in that reaction time where they're sliding into a corner or trying to get your feet organized underneath you, he suddenly prepares in the middle of the court with something that looks like another bomb, and instead it's that little bit of finesse. It's a deadly combination, and I've never seen more points where guys don't even make a run for it than he does. Since the past final uh, in Barcelona was like seven or eight legit drop shot winners. Guys just feel like, oh, you got me. I'm not going to burn energy. And that's the other thing about a drop shot as a player. You always feel like you're being toyed with. You know, it's not a good feeling (laughs) to be toyed with. And you feel like you're on a string. So that's a very unpleasant uh, feeling. I would do the power rankings of uncomfortable tennis feelings would be like aced <laughs> off the court and then drop shotted would be near my top two. Yeah. You have no chance. You feel like that out there. <laughs> he seems like he's embraced this top role, this alpha dog position. We don't know what's going to happen with Nadal. Certainly Djokovic battling stuff. Is it, and I don't ever want to write off the legends of the sport, but it, is there any reason why Alcaraz shouldn't at least be a co-favorite going into RG? I've, <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't think of a reason why not. I mean, obviously you have to think of, okay, if Nadal's healthy and can play, maybe he has had the match play, but, you know, he certainly has the record to suggest he'd be the favorite. Mm. But on current form, you know, Alcaraz has to be the second or third guy. What about Novak? Yeah, Again, that's... not a lot of tennis, but Novak, you give him a nod, but Carlos is certainly the guy. The only angle with this I've seen, and it's just like a template for younger players, is, okay, best of five now. You know, and I, and I get it's a fair thing to say for these young guys that do well best of three. Okay, beat these guys best of five. It's it's insane. And and Barcelona and Madrid, you brought up the surface. That's a it's a low key aspect. Like it's not the same. And he's playing just as dominant. Yeah, yeah. It's you know I saw a little bit in the Zverev match where Zverev likes to get into the grind, likes to hit these long rallies, and Zverev just stayed in the rally. And I always felt at times maybe he pulls the trigger too early. But it was nice to see him stay in the rally, stay in the rally, and then yeah. find yeah. the right moment. So when you've got weapons like he does, uh, it's about when you pull the trigger, you know, not how often. Yeah. And the, the thing about him, at such a young age, he's got such dependable weapons off both the backhand and the forehand. And nothing speaks to that more than clay court tennis where you have to be consistent. You have to be aggressive on the ball, not wildly aggressive, but just consistently aggressive. And he's got that. So many guys struggle, even at the elite level, with finishing points on such a brutal surface. And there's there's no struggle at all there. It's crazy. (laughs) Uh, We're recording this, uh, just so everybody knows, on Tuesday. So, you know, this will come out like Wednesday evening, Thursday morning. Alcaraz plays Karen Hatchinoff. You'll know the result by now. And I do want to give props. He's going to be a big underdog in this match. But Hatchinoff into another quarterfinal has had success on different surfaces, doesn't really get a lot of the hype as some of his you know, peers, his Russian peers, and yet this is someone that's 
kind of got that street fighter approach to tennis. Has had results on all surfaces, and here he is in another Masters 1000 quarterfinal. Yeah, and we've seen how well he's played in the last couple of majors. Was it back-to-back semis at the U.S. Open and the Australian? So you add to that consistent results at these Masters 1000s, and you're going, this guy's right at the top of his game. And I think he's maturing. He doesn't mind being, you know, the low-key guy. You know, I think he's a pretty solid guy all the way around, you know. And I think he's he's well-liked in the locker room as well. Very mentally locked in, too, and he's battling out there. You just know he's going to be in the yeah. fight, which... And, well, and, and yeah. Clay gives him a little bit of time with that forehand and the extreme grip. I've always said his backhand is one of the best in the game. He's got six six big serve. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got qualities that would suggest there's no reason he yeah. couldn't be deep in the second round, second week at Roland Garros. Oh, for sure. Uh, another quarterfinal that's actually set. You called Chorich beating Dave, Davidovich Fakina. Fikina beats Holger Rune in an epic match. So George gets Altmaier in the quarterfinal. So George has a path to, you know, a semifinal run. Somebody that, you know, the term dangerous floater gets thrown around there, but I feel like George just pops up every so often. Last year wins Cincinnati. Yeah. He might have some injuries, might have some dips in his game, but he's got that high-end game that when it's clicking, he's a he can play at a top-ten level. We've seen it. Yeah, and post-shoulder surgery, his serve is bigger than it's ever mm. been. More effective, I want to say, than it's ever been. And he's got those dependable weapons from the back. Again, so good off the backhand. The forehand can be a bit erratic, but I think he's getting better at managing that. Great athlete, great competitor, all those things that are important. And, you know, he came in, I believe, with a four-match losing streak. He had not played particularly well coming in here. So for him to find a way, get it together, it says a lot about how he has sort of that mental resilience. Because tennis, the tour (laughs) is not easy, man. You get knocked down a lot. And he seems to get up off the mat pretty good. One winner every week. So just <laughs> keep that in mind when you're watching tennis. I know that. I didn't ever come away from a week without, <laughs> without a loss. Well, so, there, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, other storylines in this. And Fakina, I just want to mention, too. You know, the run there, he's, he, he had an epic win, as I mentioned, against Runa. Playing in front of your home crowd, I, I feel like, especially with the Spaniards, they just embrace it. Like, there's a lot of players and countries even in america where the pressure could get to you but i mean he handled it so well and i don't think that's uncommon i think the spaniards kind of you know barcelona madrid back to back it's an opportunity to showcase what they're all about i think so and it's a country that loves their tennis i mean it really is i think france and spain used to be on sort of an even footing in terms of tennis i think spain has surpassed france in terms of player development player Mm -hmm. opportunities and Whatever it is you want to do, if you want to pursue tennis professional, I think Spain is, you know, a strong way to go. But, you know, here we are calling Davidovich Fikina, 5,000 seats on Arancha Sanchez <laughs> Stadium Court. I mean, it's just such a cool thing yeah. to think of how they have this wonderful history, and now these young players are coming through, yeah. and the Spanish fans are embracing them equally. It's just, it's so exciting and so much fun. And in Barcelona, what, they're playing on court Rafa Nadal? <laughs> yeah, I know, that's not shocking at all. Maybe how early it happened. So would we say that there is a possibility, as we record this, it hasn't happened yet, but, you know, Zapata Morales plays Sitsipas, and we'll see what ends up happening in that match for... For a Spaniard, it's an opportunity to play against one of the game's best at home. You, you can't, you know, replace that feeling. But Sitsipas has kind of been up and down, I think it's fair to say. He's shown in the last couple weeks that he looks healthier and he could play his high-end tennis. But there's been some dips in his game, especially on the clay that we're not really used to. Why do you think that's been the case? Yeah, I, I know during the North American hardcourt season was yeah. sort of the shoulder and he was sort of 
managing the narrative on right. his poor play. And mm -hmm. I think maybe there was something with the shoulder, but didn't have the result he wanted, I'm sure, Monte Carlo. So I I don't know. I, I feel like he hasn't been at, since Australian Open. Maybe he hasn't had been at his best. Is that a physical issue? Maybe. But he's always in the mix. He always puts himself there. So I can't, don't think you'd discount him. I mean, he's in a position to be semis or finals. Yeah. And, and who would he have if he won this match? Who's the next quarterfinal match? I mean, it's got to be Struff or Pedro Cachin. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Cachin's looked good. Struff is, you know, Struff's beat him on clay. I remember that That's match. Right. A lucky, but a lucky loser. Yeah. I mean, these guys are playing and taking advantage of these opportunities. I mean, Tsitsipas is a guy who should be there. He should. And I do think he raises his level. Like, say what you want. He's got that dip where sometimes he's out to lunch at some of the smaller events. <laughs> but he has shown that Bigger the tournaments, he does better. Yeah. It's kind of a, an impressive quality, to say the least. And he's putting out a lot of interesting quotes. You know, yeah. he's, he's the quote machine these days. Yeah, he, he is. He's, uh, you know, uh, what would you call it? Not millennial, it's a Gen Zer that loves social media. But hey, it works for him. He's different. And uh, marching to a beat of your own drum is yeah. safe to say. But hey, so, yeah, put him know. in the mix. He, I, think, I think he's a very popular player. You know, good-looking guy, good-looking game. He's got the results. Obviously, he's one of those guys. You know, after watching Zverev get beaten today, that had to be disappointing for him. Because mm. here you've got yeah. Alcaraz coming in. Suddenly, Alcaraz is taking slams away from guys like Tsitsipas, yeah. and guys like Zverev. I mean, it's a, getting to be very busy up at the top of the game where before other players might be saying, okay, Novak and Rafa, they're not going to be around. But suddenly you've got did Runa you, and these you, guys coming up. Did you feel like that when you were... I mean, maybe not at the top of the top level, right. but the younger guys come through. Was that like a, whoa, like now there's younger guys that are pressing and, you know, pushing up? Because that's where I would think the mental side would be. Sitsipas and Zverev, okay, this guy yeah. five years younger, six, seven years younger, is already past me a little bit. Yeah, well, you feel that in the locker room. You know, I was, you know, I was a Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe era, Geralditis and guys like that. And, you know, suddenly you've got guys like, young Pete Sampras and you know I played Agassi a couple times coming up and he was very young then but it was there were signs that he was <laughs> going to be coming in the door and young players they're fearless man they're like fighter pilots they don't know what can happen <laughs> they don't know the things yeah. that can go wrong yeah. uh on the tour but they come in with this incredible amount of confidence and like oh, I can beat anyone who are these guys you know I feel like <laughs> I was just picturing Holger Runa when you were saying all that just now it's very similar <laughs> Uh, last thing on the men before we get to the women, the other matches I just want to talk about. One that's complete, Karatsev beats Medvedev and gets into his quarterfinal. We'll see how that kind of draw shakes out and everything goes there. But Karatsev, you know, kind of another guy that pops up every now and again, has had results on clay, beat Djokovic before. It's good to see him back. For Medvedev, he's kind of very much outwardly downplayed his clay court game. I'm curious to see where his mindset is on the rest of this road to Roland Garros. If he's looking to actually, you know, throw his hat in the race as a contender, or if he's just looking to get some match play in. <laughs> I think the conditions in Madrid are absolutely perfect for his game. You know, he's got a lot of, lot of sort of natural power on the ball. So when he hits the ball, it's tough to defend that in these Karatsev fast can conditions. hit you off the court like exactly. we've seen it, yeah. How, but how much of an impression will that make in Rome, in Roland Garros, where it's, a, you know, a little slower, a little heavier? Can he sort of stay with it? You know, stay with the point, have the yeah. mental resolve to go deep. I don't know, maybe. But this is good for him. This is going to get him back in the top 100. Can you believe Ooh. he was outside the top 100? Yeah. 121. And so now he's back in there, and he's going to get direct entry again to, to some yeah. of the majors. And it was an important step for him to take because he went walkabout. 
Medvedev, nice to have him back. Medvedev's game, I, I do think, is better than obviously he thinks, but that a lot of people think on the clay. It's just we have a standard of him on hard court that's unassailable. <laughs> like you're not going to get to that level. So uh, remains to be seen there. Taylor Fritz uh, playing in action right now. That guy just keeps churning out good results. I mean, Christian Garin just kind of pushed around. Like that's on clay. That's no no easy move there. He's playing the uh, the Chinese king, kid Zizin uh, Zhang, I think his name is, and was the first guy to ever play the main draw match at Wimbledon, like from China. Uh, has charisma, beat Cam Nori and, Sh- and Shapovalov this tournament. So good one there for him, good moment. But for Taylor Fritz, this is a <laughs> this is a bona fide top 10 player on all surfaces. Yeah, it's setting up nicely for Taylor, the top American. You know, he's got a lot of confidence in his game, a lot of belief, but also, I don't know, it just his game looks so dependable. And that's what I think to make the transition from very good or an excellent player to an elite I think you have to have that repeatability, that dependability that you can win matches every week. Taylor's doing that. He's getting close to being an elite guy. I almost look at it like you have to have, to be that good and that consistent, because consistency is what how you get this ranking. Your A game has to, you have to have weapons. He does. You also have to have a plan B, plan C that can get you through days when you're not firing all cylinders. And that's what I what I see the most, you know. And, and he also takes losses, like, pissed off, which I mean is a compliment, <laughs> like, you know, he loses, he loses to Rublev in Monte Carlo. Not his best tennis, weird conditions. Rublev is playing lights out at times. Right. He wasn't, like, happy to make the semis. He was visibly upset, and I like that. Yeah, no, Taylor's super competitive. That's one of his best assets. And he channels it well. I, you know, I've watched him since he was young, and, you know, Paul Anikos worked with him. He's got really good people that have helped shape his game and his character on court. And I don't ever see him miss a point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He seems to always be there. He, if he gets upset, it doesn't last long. He's yeah. back in it. Yeah, and he seems sure. to get, get there when he needs to be. So I, I do like a lot of those qualities about his game. We've Shiris on Tennis Channel Insight and want to spend some time on the women here, the Madrid Open, into the quarterfinal. And now we got some semifinalists as well. Uh, starting with, you know, Igas Fiontek back at the top of the game. Hasn't been as unassailable in this tournament, meaning she's dropped a set here or there. But clay court game for her, you see the level difference. And the Alexandrova match, which is the last one she played at the time of this recording, you got to see the old school Iga problem solving out there. <laughs> You're playing a player with weapons, and not everything's going. You talk about with Fritz, plan A to plan B. That was that was a good sign from her that, okay, plan A is not working. This player is a, a quality player on the clay. I was impressed with how Iga reacted and changed tactics in that match. Yeah, I mean, she lost a second set in a tie break and had to – you know, show up in the third. And Alexandra, she hits the ball so well. I mean, you have to have some guns to compete with Shantek. If you give her time, forget it. You're going to be running. You have to go big, too. Like, that's <laughs> you the thing. Do. Like, you it's, do. you're going to make mistakes. That's just how it works. Exactly. So Otherwise, you're spinning your wheels, and then you'll be watching her hit a lot of good shots. <laughs> and I think Shantek is only getting better, and she's only going to get more dangerous. And I think the fact that she can play well in Madrid with these, you know, sort of tricky conditions. The, the clay is very slippery here. Yeah. You don't have great traction. It's sort of on a foundation of concrete where most clay courts have, you know, a softer base with a higher, slower bounce. Mm-hmm. I think she's playing well here. Very tough to beat, obviously, but I think she's only get better as the conditions mm-hmm. become easier for her where it's slower yeah. and she can use her weapons better. Getting some match play too after the injury. 
Petra Martic, Martic in the quarterfinal round. Uh, another quarterfinal matchup is going to be Pagula and Kudermatova on the Wednesday after this. And, you know, Kudermatova has been a nice story that she consistently has been floating around that 10 to 20 range, had to battle to win her match in the round before. Uh, Pagula, another example of just, you know, I, we take it for granted maybe because there's Iga and because there's now a player like Sabalenka. But Pagula deep into the deep into another tournament. Like she might not have the titles that some of these other players do, but pencil her in to every quarterfinal <laughs> round. That's right. And I mean it's, again, so dependable with her game. She counts on it. She depends on it and, and it responds. She moves well. She's I, I don't know. She her game is built from the ground up. She always seems to have her feet on the ground. That's what makes her ground strokes so solid and so potent. And She's got a really good head on her shoulders. I feel like she should take out Kudermatova. I mean, Kudermatova's talented, yet a little bit fragile mentally. I mean, she went away in the second set against Kazakina, and I wasn't sure she'd get it back. She had to save two match points in that match, Kudermatova. So I, I do think is going to have the edge there. We'll see how it unfolds, but the, look the, for Pagula to go the, even one step further. The fitness is pretty high and maybe underrated in the sense she's been playing a lot of three-set matches and winning a lot of three-set matches. You know, say what you want about should you be finishing these matches earlier, but even Iga had a second-set tiebreak she lost and just back to the drawing board. Uh, it's, it's impressive to see. Another player that I think could use a big week and is getting one is Maria Sakari. She's, you know, been a top 10 player for quite some time now, Leaf. But, you know, to get to the quarterfinal, to get through Bedosa after some disappointments, still hard to believe that we keep bringing up only the one title. But this is somebody that on the clay has had success. But this was, if you want to have that hypothetical talk, because all the results would matter, but who could use this for self-confidence the most? It might have been Maria Sakari. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I mean, she's got a nice position to draw taken on. Irina Camelia Begu, the Romanian, mm. that's a nice chance to get to Saba in mm. the semis. But, I mean, Sakri's got the game. I just feel, you know, sometimes she's a little mentally fragile and needs to be a little bit tougher, but I think she's learning that. Yeah. She's still young, great athlete, plays f wonderful tennis. I, I think it's only yeah. a matter of time. Well, we know she's not. the fitness is going to be there, <laughs> so you don't have to worry about that with her. Uh, Sabalenka, it's just... It's incre It's impressive. I mean, even in the last match when she beat Andre Andreeva, the 16-year-old. Right. <laughs> Just we got another 16-year-old, <laughs> another one with the sister too. Sabalenka, you know, dispatched her and uh, then beat Sharif today. I should say in the most recent match in three sets. Maya Sharif, shout out Egyptian <laughs> tennis player, Pepperdine College player. I know it's a great story. But Sabalenka, she'll go for maybe too much on the serve, which we come to expect now. But I've never seen a player just manage double faults. Match to match. Like, it's kind of insane with her that her serve still has these hiccups, but she can now just power through them. Yeah. Well, I like how she applied herself about the problems she was having. You know, sports psychologists, they worked on some things together with her and her team, too. I mean, that's where coaching matters. Mm -hmm. This is what it's all about. I mean, players now aren't just these, you know, solo individuals out there on tour. They've got teams around them. Mm -hmm. And those teams, like a sports organization... You know, you need to have a good trainer, a good sports psychologist. You need to have a good technical coach. And I think she's got all the pieces in place, or at least ones that work for her. So, um, boy, what can you say? She's two in the world. She's getting closer to Shrantek in terms yeah. of the rankings and the points between the two of them. She's got a chance to, to climb the summit. So she lost in Stuttgart straight sets to Iga. Is that her third final in Stuttgart? Yeah. 
she's missed out on the Porsche three times. I mean, I'd be pissed yeah, off. She almost too. broke the window this last time. <laughs> Jokingly, of that course. It was good. It was good. But yeah, if you take, I mean, it's like Ego and Barty dominated the clay. Barty before Ego, obviously, but. Sabalenka's results on clay, like, and for her style, for people that might think, oh, just big hitter or not, like, she's gotten deep into just about every tournament she's been in the last two years. I'm expecting more of the same. I'm also looking at, you know, Sabalenka as somebody that still super young. We say that in tennis a lot, but might not even be at her, even scratching the surface of her peak just yet. Yeah, and I think the fact that Saba's won Madrid before, I think that's an indication of the conditions. Again, a little bit of altitude, a little faster. You know, can she convert a title in Rome or Roland Garros where it's a little bit slower? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know whether she has that capability. I think second week coming down the stretch in both of those, she's going to be a factor, obviously, the number two in the world, supreme confidence, and just such a wonderful character. I think people like watching her play. She just exudes a really good energy, and I think that energy is making her become a better player too. Well, we're getting ready for uh, another road to Roland Garros, and Sabalenka Ego looks like the rivalry on that side. <laughs> yeah. uh, the men have countless opportunities to see some great tennis here. Some of these Americans, I think, are primed for a run. Uh, I guess we can kind of just look at who, who are you looking on the men's side to? You know, Alcaraz is just you know a monster, but who can make that run and maybe challenge him in this tournament? Who are you looking at? Maybe on the other side. You mean of the here tournament. in Madrid, in or Madrid. as we get closer? Yeah, uh, well. <laughs> I thought Zverev, so, you know, my expertise isn't looking particularly <laughs> hey, owned, good. He owned up to it. That's good. <laughs> but, you know, someone like Hatchinov, I mean, I think you have to come in with weapons. You know, you can't be someone who's going to put balls into play. I think Hatchinov potentially has that ability. I don't think Chorich would be that guy, so it might be something in the finals. You know who might, could win this title? Karatsev. Mm. I mean, he's got mm. the game. Supreme confidence once again after, you know, semis of the Australian Open back in 2021. Remember that yeah. one? Won eight matches and uh, lost to Novak finally. But I th I think he's playing the kind of tennis where he could win this title. We can get Sitsipas and what is that, Karatsev? That would be, or it would be Karatsev and Fritz potentially. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Fritz is another one too. I, you're, you're right about Alcaraz. Like, you need weapons. You need to be aggressive. You need to... Mix it up. It's like yeah. you have to just keep him on his toes. And Although, you know, Taylor's got a shot, too. I mean, yeah. there could be someone in this bottom half of the draw that could, could do it. Is it weird, and we can kind of wrap on this, is it weird because we watched the Taylor-Fritz match against him at Miami and Alcaraz just beat him pretty, pretty handily? Weird to say that maybe I like Taylor's chances more on clay, especially this clay, than, than the hard court, because on hard court now Alcaraz is probably even better than this. I think you can make the argument yeah. that this might be one of the fastest courts on tour. I mean, yeah. so the hard courts are so slow, and the conditions mm. can be so slow. Who was it, Ivo Karlovic, a few years ago, saying after Indian Wells, so I can't wait to get on the clay so I can get on some faster yeah. courts? It's true. <laughs> and so I, I do think potentially this week could be good for someone like Taylor or Karatsev to, to maybe take out an Alcaraz. I'm excited to see it. It's going to be fun. We're only, you know, less than a month now away. We're in the same month as the start of Roland Garros. Leif Shiris, blast as always. I'm a little disappointed you don't have your Maple Leaf face paint on. <laughs> well, you know, I had to give up on the Blackhawks this year, so my wife's Canadian. I'm an honorary Canadian. You are. You are, yeah. You dual <laughs> citizenship, basically. But look, I mean, with everything that's happened in the hockey playoffs, Boston out, Rangers out, you know, all the old blood basically out Colorado, Carolina's got the last most recent title of anybody left, 2006. Yeah. 
we could get that all Canadian final. I'm 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 thinking it's a chance. Toronto Edmonton. That'd it could be, be Felix versus Dennis. <laughs> Shapovala versus OJ Aliassi. I think it's gonna I think it's gonna be exciting. But for your Maple Leafs and for you know the family at home, it's uh it's been exciting to see. Love it, Mitch. Thanks, streak. man. Yeah, always a pleasure, Lee. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to both Riley Opelka and Leif Shivers for appearing on this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Madrid Open is going into the latter stages. Alcaraz defeats Hatch off in a barn burn of a match. The women's semis are coming up. It's going to be an exciting weekend in Spain. Also Rome coming forward. And then, before you know it, May 28th, the start of the French Open. Thanks again to Riley Opelka. Thanks again to Leif Shivers. We're on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast for the entire catalog of shows. Check out this podcast, Inside In, on all your podcast platforms, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, of course, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. We are everywhere you consume your podcasts. We will be back next week. More chat on the road to Roland Garros, more discussion, more analyzing, and more insight that you won't get anywhere else. I'm Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll see you next week.